Why, hello there, church family. It is Pastor Jake once again coming to you from my office here at the church parsonage. I am so glad to hear the report that God has been keeping you healthy uh, and preserving you through these times, and He's been answering many requests, um, and He has continued to work in your lives, and you've been able to uh, just spread the message of truth uh, throughout the communities and those you interact with, so I am so encouraged by that. Last week we looked at Joseph's life and we dug into the deceit and lies that haunted his family line, the ones that he struggled with and he tried to get away from. We saw a taste of the unfairness that life can bring to those who are counted otherwise faithful. Joseph was unfairly treated by his father, being given such a place of honor above his brothers. He was unfairly treated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and then forced into slavery. If those circumstances weren't enough, just when it seems like he was making headway in life and starting to do well for himself, he was unfairly accused of having relations with his master's wife and then thrown into jail. When we consider Joseph's life, we have to ask, what is fair? And who says what is fair? When Alicia and I first got to Bible college back in 2004, we had some money saved, but really we were putting all of our trust in the idea that the GI Bill would kick in and start paying for everything. If you've ever dealt with trying to get money from the government, you're probably going to laugh at our ignorance. It wasn't but a couple of months into the first semester that our money actually ran out. We had enough to pay for the bills for the rest of the month as we'd prioritize them, but we didn't really have enough money to pay for the food. You know when you're running low on food when both the ramen and the spam cans are used up. The situation brought us to the point where we had to really start doing some soul searching to see why we were actually at college in the first place. It really opened our eyes, and we finally started to realize what we were putting our trust in and who we were not putting our trust in. When I think of the events that happen in our lives that end up teaching us a lot about ourselves and our faith, I automatically think of the book of Job. Job is pronounced Job, not Job, as I first initially thought, and I know many other people have as well. It is an Old Testament book found right before Psalms in our Bible. It's written about a man by the name of Job, and the unique events that are happening in his life. Now, we don't actually know the author, though there are several guesses. Since we aren't completely sure of who the author is, we are not completely sure exactly when it was written. The book covers the theme, Why Do the Righteous Suffer? As this is the question raised after Job loses his family, his wealth, and his health. Before we begin, I want to ask you, what is your definition of fair? Hopefully, we would both agree with the dictionary definition that the word is supposed to mean free from bias, dishonesty, or injustice. In practice, though, I tend to see and do something entirely different. Maybe you've watched a sports team, heard a referee call get constantly contended with, or you've ever watched a court trial and decided yourself if the men and women who are given sentences, if those sentences are fair or unfair. We as people contend constantly with what is fair because we bring bias into our decisions. I want to introduce you to three well-intentioned men who are completely guilty of this very same thing. Their names are Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You may recall that these are the names of Job's three friends. In the book, they come to comfort Job and to discuss his crushing series of tragedies. Let's first dive into what their friend went through and then their reactions. A quick reading of the first four chapters of this book will show you that Job has just lost everything. If you open your Bible to the book of Job, like I said before, it's right before Psalms, we'll begin in chapter 1 and read from verses 13 through 19. 
Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, and he said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Like a series of dominoes falling in quick succession, Job loses his children and his wealth. But it doesn't stop there. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 says this, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat there in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Both of these events happened quickly and within a short time between them. To imagine the shock of it all. Job has now lost everything you and I would typically use to find our identity in. He has lost his children, his possessions, his wealth, his health, and now his spouse. Listen to what Job says of his life, how he was treated before the tragedy struck, and how he's now being treated. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me, and they withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, one who comforts the mourners. This is in chapter 29, verses 7 through 10. After everything was taken, though, this is what he says of his situation. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even the young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved have turned against me. This comes from chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. Job has now endured unimaginable tragedy. His life is completely turned upside down, and where he was once treated as a king, he is now despised by everybody, including his family and his wife. Now his three closest friends have come to comfort him, and in their defense, they start off well enough. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, shows us their initial reaction. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards the heavens. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Right away they come to see their friend when he's suffering. 
They empathized with him, and they too began to weep aloud for their friend, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They also spent time with Job, as they sat there for a week with him, just ready to be there for their friend. But soon they begin speaking, and they show their biases, and it is these biases that they bring that I really want to focus on today. As they start their lengthy speeches, it becomes apparent that they insist his suffering is a punishment for the sin in his life. Job, on the other hand, will remain devoted to God through all of this ordeal, and he will contend that his life has not been one of sin. Back in the 13th century, there was this man by the name of Maimonides, I might have pronounced that wrong, who is regarded as one of the most famous Jewish scholars of all time. He separated the viewpoints of each of these three friends in this way. First, he saw that Eliaphaz represented the biblical or rabbinic tradition that Job had been punished for his sins. Second, he held that Bildad expressed the view of the Mutuzalites. It's an Islamic group that branched off of Judaism. And that he held that Job is being tested to receive a greater reward. And then finally, he speculated that Zophar presented the view of the Asherites, which is another Islamic group, that Job suffered because of God's arbitrary will, just randomly. So what I want to do is walk you through each of the friends' arguments. There's a lot here, and some of it we're just going to touch on. At the end, I want you to see the view that they brought to the table, and that God has very specific words to speak about their individual views. So let's dive into it. First comes Eliaphaz. In Job chapter 4, verse 7, Eliaphaz poses this question. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or, where were the upright cut off? I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same. Eliaphaz holds one of the most common views of sin and suffering from a religious standpoint that we see even today. He says essentially that everyone sins and they reap their own direct reward. And you've probably heard this argument before. If he was innocent, why did this come upon him? And you've probably thought, well, he probably got what he deserved. This argument assumes that God is good in the manner that he only disciplines people or allows trouble equal to any trespass that they make. Essentially, the larger the crime, the harsher the punishment. Saying that all punishment is equal to the crime. There are many religious organizations that hold to this balanced view, where God continually brings balance to the scales in direct retaliation to sin. In response to Eliaphaz's first speech, Job maintains his innocence. So, in Eliaphaz's second speech in Job 15, he says to Job, in verse 2 through 6, Job 15, 2 through 6, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words in which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you chose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your lips testify against you. Eliaphaz apparently becomes frustrated that his first approach hasn't made Job confess of his apparent sin, and now it's a sin that only Eliaphaz can see, of course. So he decides to take a different approach, and he says to his supposed friend that it isn't just the sin in his life that is causing God to deal with him so, but that Job must now not fear God, and that his present circumstances are a direct result of Job having no fear or respect of God above. Did you catch that? Eliaphaz first attacked Job's physical actions, and now he's saying he knows 
Job's heart. Job again maintains his innocence and says of Eliphaz's efforts that he and his compatriots are miserable comforters in 16.2. Unfortunately, it doesn't get much easier for Job. Eliphaz has one final speech in chapter 22 where he again accuses Job of a great wrongdoing. If you pick it up with me in chapter 22, verse 5, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. He then proceeds to list all of Job's supposed sins from verses 6 through 9. From Eliaphaz's perspective, again and again, he points out that he feels that for such a great evil to fall on someone, they must have done something very bad. At the end of the day, Eliaphaz's view is that if you follow God and are innocent, no harm will come to you. So let's move on to the second of Job's friends, Bildad. Bildad echoes Eliaphaz in Job chapter 8. He tells Job his perspective. So let's read chapter 8 verses 5 through 6. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. According to Bildad's perspective, if Job repents of his wrong, all the material things that he lost would be restored, guaranteed. This implication is that Job is not pure and upright, and that material prosperity is directly linked to one's righteous behavior. You've probably heard this same message before if you've ever heard a preacher say, if you only have enough faith, then God will fill in the blank. It is what we call the prosperity gospel. Your situation in life is completely based on how much faith you have. In Bildad's second speech in Job 18, he, like Eliaphaz before him, focuses on the theme that God punishes the wicked. His logic is that since Job is being punished, that he must have done something wrong. Bildad's third speech in Job chapter 25 focuses on the idea that a person cannot be righteous before God. Job 25 verse 4 recounts his words, How then can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? At the end of the day, Bildad holds to the view that if you have enough faith in God and repent of your sin, no harm will befall you. The theme so far has been fairly constant. Partial truth has been spoken, but it has been heavily sprinkled with bias and it has hints of self-righteousness. Finally, we have friend number three, who is a man by the name of Zophar. His first speech is found in Job chapter 11. He declares in verse 6, for he is manifold in understanding, speaking of God. Know then that God exacts of less of you than your guilt deserves. So Zophar says in his first speech to Job, a man who is supposed to be his friend, mind you, God didn't punish him enough, and that Job deserved worse. While Eliaphaz and Bildad gave three speeches, Zophar ended up only giving two. You ever seen one of those old infomercials where they say, but wait, there's more? This is one of those times. Though there were originally only three men, during the course of this discourse of these men accusing Job of great unconfessed sin and self-righteousness, a fourth man by the name of Elihu appears on the scene, and he gives a fairly lengthy speech himself. His is the last speech from the supposed friends. We pick up his speech in Job 32, verse 2. And we'll read through 7. So, Job chapter 32. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, and the family of Ram, 
burned with anger. He burned with great anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak, and let many years teach wisdom. So Elihu has come in, and he speaks his mind at last. He says in verse 19 that his belly is like a wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. Essentially, he states that he's bursting at the seams, waiting to vent his frustration at the situation. What is unique about Elihu's response is that he really makes it stand out in a way because he focuses actually on God and God's justice, God's greatness, and God's majesty. In fact, actually more than half of the six-chapter-long speech points towards God's character. After enduring the harsh criticism of those who claim to be his friends, after their grueling attacks at his character and his relationship with God eternal, does Job finally have the rare opportunity to bring his case before God himself? It is here in these final chapters that who is right and who is wrong is finally laid to rest. It is here that God decides to make his intentions known, to show off his true character, and the answers that he leaves should change who we claim to follow of the God and heaven and earth and the way that we view every event and person in the world. Before we get to God's word, I want to recap since we've gone over a lot. So, so far, their advice has been, number one, if you follow God and are innocent, that no harm will come to you. Number two, if you follow God and repent of your sins, no harm will come to you. And number three, if you follow God and have enough faith, you will only receive blessings. So let's just stop for a second. Have you ever heard this advice before? Have you ever given this advice before? Do you know what God thought of their advice? Turn with me to Job chapter 42, verse 7, to find out exactly what God says. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Whoa! God clearly condemned their advice. The advice, if you only follow God and are innocent, no harm will come to you. Or, if you follow God and repent your sins, no harm will come to you. Or even, if you follow God and have enough faith, you will only receive blessings. Let that sink in. He says, I am angry with you because you have not spoken the truth about me. Those should be very sobering words to every person who speaks on God's behalf, supposing that they know exactly how he thinks and reacts. If you've ever looked at a person and said, well, it must be because of their sin that they're in this situation, you are walking a very fine line and judging someone in a way that God has clearly stated that only he can. If you've ever looked at someone and said, if they only repented of their sin, then their life would be better for them, be careful, you're walking a very fine line. If you've ever said, well, if you had but a little more faith, then God would fill in the blank, be careful. You walk a very fine line. 
It is for these reasons that we should always be careful about how we interpret individual verses from Job. It's unwise to pull out an isolated verse from this book and to use it to understand God. If the verse comes from a speech of Eliaphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, then we have no guarantee of its accuracy and that it actually reflects the character of God, as God himself has said as much. As with any single verse within the entire Bible, we must look at the context before making them principles of God. Remember, just because someone is good at sinning, we can't assume their suffering is a result of their sin. I want to take you to Jesus' own words to give you this context. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 9. Now, while you're turning there, I always like showing the big picture of the Bible, how everything connects from one end to the other. In this discussion of a man's life and how sin impacts it, Jesus has some pretty important words to add on to this subject. In John, Jesus is near the temple in Jerusalem, and he's traveling with his disciples. And his disciples ask him a question that I've asked myself, and you probably have as well. So let's pick it up, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It is a great temptation in each one of us to view bad things as happening as God's punishment upon our lives or the lives of others around us. While this may sometimes be the case, it is clear from Jesus' own words that God allows suffering for other reasons. At the end of the day, it's incredibly important that we realize that we are not called to be the judge of the situation. In college, my wife and I were not suffering because of sin, well, maybe from a little poor planning, but about the time we were finally coming to the who and the what of where we were putting our trust, a man with a bread truck came to the college and said that he had a full truckload of bread that the store didn't need and couldn't be sold, so it could only be donated or thrown out. He asked if anyone needed it. The entire truckload was gone in less than an hour. Apparently, we weren't the only ones that needed it. The bread man kept coming back every week for about two months. Funny enough, when he stopped, it was about the same time that the GI Bill finally kicked in, four months late, so for the government it was on time. So what can we do when we see others suffering? You know, at first the three friends had it right, before they decided to become the judges of Job's life decisions. First, they came to their friend in need, probably as soon as they could. Second, they cried with him. Romans 12:15 tells us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And finally, they spent time with Job when he was mourning. They spent time in his mourning and they spent a week with him. Who does that? Life is not about us. Did you notice that the three friends were scolded by God? But not Elihu, the fourth guy that came in at the end? Have you ever asked why? One author suggests it this way. First, he dealt with the real issues of the situation, rather than looking at the situation from a human perspective. Second, he emphasized God 
and his greatness rather than focusing on a human response to the problems. And third, he responded with respect, allowing others to speak before offering his own response. There's a lot here to chew on, and hopefully it's been helpful. Remember, we are called to be there for others in their suffering, to show love. We are not called to judge them. There's a lot of suffering going on in our world right now. So which approach are you taking? Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to bring your word um, to the people. Father, I ask that you continue to use it. Help your truth to go out. Help us to be reminded to be people who are there to love and comfort. Help us to be reminded that we are not called to be the judge, that you are the only judge. Father, I ask that you help us to go in love. Help us to be there for the people, just as Job's friends were. At the very beginning, they started out well. Father, help us to be people of your word. Help us to be light bearers in a time that is uncertain. God, I thank you so much for today's opportunity. Help us to serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening in uh, to this audio sermon. I really do hope that uh, God uses it to bless you. And I can't wait to see you guys again in person. Hopefully, it's coming really soon.